0: The frontier in space, embodied in the space colony, is one in which the interactions between humans and their environment is so much more sensitive and interactive and less tolerant of irresponsibility than it is on the whole surface of the Earth. The Interplanetary Podcast. The exploration of space for the benefit of all mankind. Your hosts here in London, Matthew Russell and Jamie Franklin.
1: Did-di-do. Oh, yeah, baby,
0: Rusty, Rusty Schweikart. Oh, what a surname, Matt. Oh, the Schweikart. I'd be proud
1: of that. Yeah, you, you're probably going to have to listen to that quote a few times to unpack it a little bit. It was a long one, but, you know, we're not afraid of long ones on this podcast, are we, Matt? Jamie. Hello. It's Rusty Schweikart's birthday today, 1935 he was born, still alive, pilot and astronaut. A.K.A. Ledge of the week. Also a birthday boy, although long passed away... Go on. ...is the second greatest Russell in space, the Henry Norris Russell.
0: Oh, I thought you were talking about one of your Rovers. his
1: birthday. (laughs) The Russell Rover.
0: Henry Norris Russell, American astronomer, 1877
1: to 1957, am I correct? You are indeed correct. Not an epic innings, but a pretty good one by any stretch of the imagination. Well, you know what
0: they say about... Candles that burnt twice as bright, Matthew.
1: You know, he was all about stars. He knew about standard candles for show. Oh,
0: god, yeah.
1: He's his dad was called the Reverend Alexander Gatherer Russell. How about that for a for a middle name?
0: Now that should be what the Rover is called. The Gatherer. Oh
1: it's genius. <laughs> Yeah, I might do that. Uh, and his mum was Eliza Hoxie Norris, hence the fact he was Henry Norris Russell. Aww. So, yes, he studied at Princeton University and gained his degree just before the turn of the century. And then got his doctorate, literally in 1899.
0: Well, then between 1903 and 1905, Cambridge Observatory with another Arthur, Matt. You've got a little boy mm. called Arthur, not that little anymore. Yeah. Um, Arthur Robert Hinks. Uh, as a research assistant of the Carnegie Institution. Yes. As you know, Matthew, came under the strong influence of one George Darwin.
1: And do you know who George Darwin is?
0: Um, I'm going to say he's related to Charles Darwin.
1: He is he is indeed. He's one of his sons who was also a very competent astronomer. Not too shabby in that family, is it? No, no, it really isn't. Uh, he returned to Princeton where he was an instructor... And then a professor, but while he was a professor, he developed the Hertzsprung Russell diagram. Get in, which is pretty much where you, when you know when people say, "Oh, it's uh, the sun is one of those main sequence stars." Yes, it kind of comes from that that this plot of stars that's basically. Uh, each star is on the graph, measured with the star's brightness against its temperature, and and if you do that, you get this uh, very obvious uh, diagram, which shows you whereabouts in a star's life it is on this on this diagram. And uh, it was so; it's a very useful diagram, and it sh- and it and it was a deep insight into how stars the, the evolution of stars. Uh, and, yeah, so the main sequence is this, this kind of main band that appears. Nice. And it basically means they're still fusing hydrogen in the core. Who
0: doesn't love to fuse that stuff?
1: Exactly. Well, I'll tell you who doesn't, and that's the next sort of branch off that's where helium fusion is going on. Oh, that old
0: chestnut.
1: Yeah. So, yes, then he became a professor in 1911. Yeah. Where he, where he was to teach people like Shapley. What?
0: What, from from the infamous episode Podcast 105 of the Interplanetary
1: Podcast? Exactly. That's very well remembered. Yes, we, we, we did a deep dive on Shapley on Podcast 105. What's really weird is now, I'm, I'm, I'm starting to think that maybe listeners have uh, have sort of remembered everything on all the podcasts, but I, it's, it's amazing. I've, I've looked through some of the old podcast notes and think, what, we talked about that? I don't remember that at all.
0: Then someone writes in and goes, yeah, you did. Episode 105, you bunch of geeks. We love you. (laughs)
1: 1925. If you remember, we had a story when we did Cecilia Payne-Kaposchkin as our legend of the week on podcast 132. No, I do remember that, yeah. Yeah, remember that he fell out with her because he was sort of saying, whatever you do, don't say that the sun is made of a different stuff to earth. What are you thinking? Don't say it's a giant fireball. And then then he realized, oh no, it, it is, because he got there via somewhere else. But good old Russell, he he, he um went back and sort of said, No, Payne was the discoverer that well, the Matt, sun had a different chemical. Wasn't composition.
0: he also the pioneer in quantum physics? Yeah. You know, described spin orbit coupling or LS coupling, yeah, in atoms. And this is called Russell Saunders coupling. After Russell and Frederick Albert
1: Saunders, we must clarify there that the Russell and Frederick weren't a couple. Are you sure? Yes, I, I know that Russell was married and had several children.
0: Yeah, but so was Oscar Wilde.
1: Oh, okay. Just saying. Yeah,
0: but all all Matt's saying, listeners, is if you're if you're a married man with kids, absolutely fine if you change your mind and you want to bat for the other team. We endorse <laughs> that here. Just please don't have an affair. L- love is love, Jamie. Do you, do you think this is the new? Um, this could be a new path for our podcast, <laughs> couldn't it? Dear Dr. Franklin, I'm a, I'm a straight man with four kids. That kind
1: of stuff. It almost bears not saying. Research professor, 1927 to 1947, and this time, not Shapley as his student, but Spitzer Jeez. as his student. Yeah. So, uh, yes, and this is where he wrote a manual, the astronomy manual called A Revision of Young's Manual of Astronomy with Duggan and Stewart. <laughs> and that's pretty much the uh, textbook that was the textbook of astronomy for about two decades. The bomb when it came out. Yeah, it was man. like, you know, your, your definitive text. And so, yes, it, it popularised the idea of his, um, his earlier Hertzsprung-Russell diagram and uh, also that um, a star's Properties are mostly determined by the chem- chemical composition um, and, and its mass, which is known as the Voigt-Russell theorem. If you,
0: I mean if you don't know the Voigt-Russell theorem, I mean, Jesus, what are you well, doing? Well, you're not a high-end astronomer. yeah I mean, not like you, Jamie.: I'll tell you what, that
1: people if they don't know that, they can get out. so yes he was he he was director of the princeton university observatory um and he he died in princeton so pretty much his entire life was at princeton so he was 79 uh, not not a bad
0: not a bad innings
1: yeah so you can go and visit his grave to today if you've got the chance and you're in princeton uh, at the university listening to our podcast please go pay your respects and um let us say. Princeton know. Cemetery, yeah. Just off your pop.
0: Now, Matt, I know that you've been waxing lyrical on the Mars mm-hmm. exhibition at the Design Museum, but you really mean it, don't you?
1: I, I really do, yeah. Going to Mars exhibition at the, at the Design Museum is literally insanely good. So if you're in London between now and February... You, you've got to go and go, got to go and see it. There's there's lots of cool things. There's even an, the very first thing you come across is a pretty massive Ariane six in the entrance outside, which I reckon are, are, I reckon Mega Patreon Julio had something to do with. And uh, yeah, absolutely awesome. What? And there's the Rosalind Franklin rover roving around. Also, got... you said
0: there was models of the Mars habitats.
1: Yeah, so all those Mars habitats that we were talking about on the podcast, yeah, you know, it's got them all like Marsha and all those things. I've been, I, I took some pictures through the glass and and uh, been posting them on my Instagram. You sound and like and Tom, Matt, through I mean, the glass. Kind of it, kind of was, and I got to I got to interview an architect, a designer oh, who works at Hassel, very 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 cool uh, person who has designed a big major Mars project. And there was a full-size mock-up of what the living space would look like, including a kind of vista. Well, I tell so you, th- that's, that's worth it in, on itself.
0: I tell you why I want to go because I want to learn about hydroponically grown food.
1: Yeah, and I, I actually think you can buy the food as well. So you can buy this food, and it's like I think it seems to be a company. No, it's like it's like you know salad that's being grown. You it, mean it's salad that's being grown in urban spaces, so with no sun, just just it, so. In, in other words, they they're kind of practicing all the techniques you would need to yeah. grow stuff. Well, they need on to get those. it. They
0: need to get it better than the cotton plant on the moon, which is great. Oh, but yeah. I mean, oh, you know, you're not going to feed that's many people off of that.
1: Isn't that strange? Isn't it that, that that 2019 is the very first year that anything grew on the moon. And we didn't really – I can't believe we didn't make more of a fuss about it. but We did, pretty, didn't we? Well, we did, yeah. yeah we Although did, I just kind of slagged
0: it, it off. But I didn't mean it like that. I just meant if we're going to grow some
1: food, we're going to need to bulk up.
0: Because, I mean, I've seen how much you eat, Matt. And this we're
1: going to mm. have to support more people than one. Also, something that uh, you must do with your time. in If you're in London, uh, and it's only on for another couple of weeks, right. so is Solaris – at the Hammersmith Lyric, the play of the book, the Stanislav Lemmy. it's a play, yes. So it's much more faithful to the original book, and we've got an interview with the director coming up. That is exciting. Yeah, and an astronomer from the Royal Observatory in Greenwich joined me for that as well. So uh, that that's coming up in, in in a bit. But yes, get yourself down to that. It's it's really critically acclaimed. Uh, it's a great story. Well, I tell you what—it's a, a sci-fi classic, isn't well, it? It really a, is. It's
0: an absolute classic. I'm going to get myself down there, and uh, I might take a few people along. Who wants to come yeah, with so me? Matt, I will tell you what—before we go to that interview,
1: you've, we, you've can, only got yeah, you've only got a couple of weeks to do that. So yeah, make sure so you do it. Hurry
0: up! Um, so, interview coming up. Um, but first, we're going to have to talk about SpaceX drink, drink Elon Musk. I mean, hashtag broadband in space. Just saying. <laughs>
1: Yeah, well, that, that, quite a lot of news is, is coming out of this one. I love the fact that Elon Musk said on Twitter, right, I'm attempting to post something via Starlink. So he must be the first person ever to tweet something via a... <laughs> and via, isn't it great by, that he followed up with, whoa, it worked. <laughs> it worked. I mean, fair enough. I mean, it, I mean it, that is actually incredible, isn't it, that he's like sitting in an office somewhere where they've got this terminal... That's able to connect to this tiny little. um, Well, I say tiny; it's sixty satellites that they've put up so far, but that's not enough for proper coverage. But I tell you what: military aircraft apparently have been testing this, and they're getting like six hundred and ten megabits per second while flying.
0: Jeez, that's pretty
1: cool, isn't it? And that's just off the the first sixty. Let me ask you, Matt:
0: is that enough megabits to get the to stream the interplanetary podcast?
1: Well, I think that's what they've been testing it with. Surely, yeah, because the numbers are shot up. up And so, I can only assume it's 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 American pilots uh, listening to the podcast. So, hi, hi, if you're listening on Starlink, safe journey, please, safe space (laughs) space people, safe journey. But it looks like yeah, Gwyn Shotwell was saying that they want uh, to have they want to be delivering actual broadband by the middle of next year, which would require well, she requires another six to eight batches and the user terminals to get finished. So these user terminals, I would imagine, is kind of the the big hurdle here, is, is designing something that can actually talk to the satellites yeah. up there. Um, so there's 60 up at the moment, and they were launched on a single Falcon. And then you've got, they reckon you need 400 of these things to to provide minor coverage. So I guess that's what Gwynne Shotwell was thinking. 800 for moderate they have the approval to launch twelve thousand Starlink satellites, and they've applied to loft up thirty thousand more. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I, can hear now, the, the, I can hear the disgruntled astronomers
1: now. I know. Well, just think about it. At the moment, we've got two, two about two thousand, over two thousand working satellites in total. That's not just you know SpaceX ones. That's in total, total every single nation on Earth. About nine thousand satellites have been launched, but a lot of those, of course, have burnt up in the atmosphere since. But yeah, thirty 000, an extra thirty forty two thousand satellites <laughs> just on one one of these mega constellations. That that's pretty crazy. Well, thank goodness it? space is big. Now, of course, well, we obviously, if you've been looking at Twitter and all and everyone, they're all down at the IAC, of course, this week. So there's been a few of announcements they are. and. And we should do a European one. So Ariane 6 is going to have a rideshare mission to the moon in Hell 2023. yeah, it is. The Ariane space CEO, Stefan Israel, uh, was a person that flagged this up. And they were saying it could deliver 8,500 kilograms to the lunar surface. Hell 8. yeah. Eight and a half tons. And uh, it, they expect it to be government and private customers. And... They also mentioned that they want and i think this is even more exciting in twenty twenty two they're going to be pushing uh ESA for a space flight a european space flight program a a human european space flight Ooh. program so so um that that's pretty awesome and they've also been talking about um uh, getting funding for the Prometheus engine so that they can get it ready to use on things like the Ariane 6, perhaps, but certainly a future reusable European launch vehicle.
0: I'm excited. That's big news.
1: Yeah, and an, an, an other big news. This is quite a, This is quite a big one. Blue Origin also said that they were creating a national team.
0: Okay. So, uh,
1: yeah, national team to, to, uh, to pitch for the lunar lander missions to NASA, the human wow. lunar lander missions. So they're going what they've said is that Blue Origin are going to provide the descent module, so I guess similar to their Blue Moon project. Uh, Lockheed are going to do the ascent module. Uh, Northrop are going to do the transfer stage, so that's the bit that takes the lander from the gate- gateway down into a sort of low lunar orbit, and Draper are going to do the guidance system. So like four of the, these massive companies taking on board what old Bezos described as a national priority.
0: Well, I tell you what, that's not a bad team, is it, if you think about it,
1: really? Well, they've certainly got quite a bit of financial clout between...
0: They can write a cheque.
1: Thanos. It's the Thanos's hand of writing cheques. I'll, I'll email them each and say, you know, if they want to become a Patreon, where to, where to go. If you want to stick in your bid there, Jamie, remember you've got only until November the 1st to get your proposal in for the Human Landing Services Programme.
0: I've already sent it.
1: Okay, good. Okay, yeah. thank you. I'll, um,
0: be, I'll be skating off probably sometime in November, I imagine.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I presume you have to go for some high-end meetings there.
0: Yeah, I need to get some injections, like when you go to Southeast Asia.
1: Well, hopefully we'll hear whether you've won that bid uh, before the end of the year. So that's, that's uh, something I to look forward gross. to. See, yeah. so, well, you know, we, we're moving at high pace if 2024 really is feasible.
0: Really? Uh, is
1: fast. Uh, something, something I did notice, Jamie, oh, it's yeah. been the, lent, the, the 11th lunar day that Chang'e 4 has been uh, on the moon and ah, it's just yeah. woken up after another extremely cold night. Uh Um, and of course the cold nights are, um, half a lunar month Mm -hmm. because, because of course the moon is tidally locked. So as it goes round, it, it basically in a lunar month, you've got a night and a day cycle. Yes. So yes, for every lunar month that we have, there's been a day and a night on the moon for, well if you're in one place, that is, uh-huh. if you are the Changi for lander. So, yes, both the lander and the rover woke up and, and uh back to work. So the u 2 Jade Rabbit 2, uh, woke up and they're uh, resuming their work in the lunar exploration.
0: They're like teenagers waking up at 11.45am, aren't they? <laughs> Do you think they're slamming doors and yeah. eating hot oh, noodles God. as
1: well? I wish I was never born. My God, I hate the moon. It's so boring. <laughs> Can <laughs> I go to be out? Fair.
0: Yeah.
1: Even all my friends have died. Even my plan. I oh, don't. Gonna get me filling up, Jamie. But the big British news is that reaction engines have validated the pre-cooler at hypersonic heat conditions, and this Ooh. this is actually pretty massive, I reckon. So they've successfully tested the pre-cooler at airflow temperature conditions representing Mach 5. So if you were to go Mach 5 in your fighter jet, this is how hot the air would be coming into your engine. Mm. So that's five times the speed of sound. And that's a massive milestone. And it's so much faster than any other pre-cooler. And just so you kind of work what that actually means, it means that it can get um, airflow temperatures down from a thousand degrees centigrade or 1,800 degrees Fahrenheit if you prefer that in one twentieth of a second. Jeez Louise. That's quick. So yeah. So they they did that at their Colorado air and spaceport in U in the United States. It's this is a facility that's been built for that purpose, for these HTX testing program. And, yeah, so that's demonstrated the pre-cooler's ability to actually cool this airflow. And that's absolutely monstrous because, I mean, that's 50% faster than the SR-71 Blackbird ever went, and that's the fastest plane ever, So and twice as fast as Concorde. So that's pretty, that's pretty epic.
0: Well, have we got a quote from uh, anyone from Reaction?
1: Well, I should have emailed Alan Bond, of course, who is, of course, the daddy of this. And and this this it could it could yeah so so I, I I will I will email Alan and see what his well, uh, thoughts are on this. Then. But um, but let's do Mark. Let's let's hear Mark Thomas, the chief executive, and and he says. This is a major moment in the development of a breakthrough aerospace technology which has seen reaction engines pre-caller test and Mark V airflow temperature conditions smashing through previous achievements at Mark 3.3 temperatures and paving the way for hypersonic flight. That's pretty cool, isn't it? That's a good quote. It is a, it's a it's a good quote because what a it, it, it yeah I and mean, he goes on to say that this this technology is also really useful for lots of other things as well so they they may even before we see these hypersonic saber engines on aircraft and on rockets we we might see them in other kind of industrial processes anyway so this is
0: well as this should, is, as space th- keeps proving we're not just doing stuff to you know better space are we
1: mm, no we're not and, and so this is a major milestone after 30 years of work by people like Alan Bond and Richard Varville and John Scott Scott this is this is very good news and uh, so the UK space agency and the European space agency were have been involved in reviewing and validating the design and now they are uh, are doing tests for another set of tests at Westcott in but uh, in buckinghamshire so back in in blighty but this hdx hot heat exchanger test the actual engine the actual kind of test stuff was built here in the uk and then shipped over to colorado for testing and it's basically a a massive jet engine that's blasting hot air at a at another device at this pre-cooler to see if you can get the temperature down you say that i blast hot air don't you Exactly, and, and I, I basically need some form of pre-cooler before my ears so that I can cope with it.
0: <laughs> Somebody sent back some pre-cooler at
1: yeah. once. Ah, yes. $100 million they've managed to raise reaction engines to do these tests. Science Minister Chris Skidmore, this is quite a good one. It's quite funny because he manages to bring in a bit of Brexit here, so are ready? Yep. Yeah. The Sabre Engine is one of UK's most exciting engineering projects which could change forever how we launch satellites into orbit and travel across the world. It's fantastic to see reaction engines passing this significant milestone, which demonstrates how its pre-cooler technology can deal with the extreme temperatures associated with travelling at five times the speed of sound. The government invested 60 million quid in Sabre, and it's committed to taking a more strategic approach to space, developing our national capabilities to complement and expand on the UK's leading role in the European Space Agency once we leave the EU. Is he from Mumbai? He was. He's uh, <laughs> like the Elon Musk, he's South African. I felt myself slipping into South African then. That's what she said. It was said. weird. It was weird. It's, it's hard, isn't it, maintaining a accent over a long period? It very. It,
0: it is it's very hard. But you know what? I think you did very well, Matt. It made me think of... You talking to me about
1: which curries you like from the Birmingham area? We're, the inventors of the Balti curry. If, if you're ever in, <laughs> we're going to get some ever, emails now. <laughs> well, we are. But if you're ever if you're ever in Birmingham, and you need a decent curry. That 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 really is it. That, there that's, we go. That's, the the Royal that's the one. The Royal Faisal. You heard it here the first. Royal, the Royal Al Faisal. Matt, well, it we, certainly was. I don't know. We, uh, it, you know, may have changed hands.
0: It it could well have done. Uh, Shall we
1: listen to this interview? We shall. I'll shall. I tell you who it is with. Please, Matthew Lutton, who is the director, and so he's like the the big dude. He was such a lovely guy, and you know he'd he'd actually come all the way over to Hammersmith just to do this interview because he was flying off back to back to the southern hemisphere um, to, to to start. Work on something else because apparently w- once you've got once you're in your first once you've done your first couple of nights, you're off to start the next one. Even though these things take about two and a half years to put together, and it was Ace because wow. I was joined by this really really cool guy called uh, Brendan Owens, who is an astronomer from the Royal Observatory Greenwich. And what, so what it was a crew? Yeah. So and and we were just sat in a little room and we had this little chat. So uh, would you like to hear it? It's quite fun.
0: Let's roll the tape.
1: I could say The Interplanetary Podcast Putting the Ace Back into Space I'm at the Lyric Theatre I'm I'm here because there's a a new production of Solaris and I'm joined by two special guests and I'll hand it over to them to introduce themselves and and why they're so special. Here goes. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I'm Matt Lutton. I'm the
2: director of this production of Solaris and the artistic director of the Malthouse Theatre in Melbourne. That's one of the co-producers of the production. Uh, I'm Brendan Owens and I'm an astronomer at the Royal
3: Observatory Greenwich and uh, I look after our public programmes there.
1: First of all, I suppose, is, yeah, tell us a little bit about your production and, well, I guess, why, why, should, why should people want to see this one? Is it, is it, is, does it have a kind of uh, USP to it? <laughs> um,
2: uh, well, this is a production of Solaris that was adapted by uh, Scottish playwright David Gregg. Uh, we've been working on for about two years. Um, and we adapted the novels, the Stanislaus Lem's novel, uh, as opposed to either of the film versions. So um, it's been... And you know, part of this challenge has always been about how to marry the science and the philosophy and the human story in Lem's novel. Um, and, I mean, I was always interested in this. I've always been interested in... I've never done a science fiction story on stage. You don't usually see them on stage. Mm. But it's been really... I've always been fascinated with stories that on stage scare you in some way. They have a level of dread or existential dread associated with them. Um, and this one for me is also a story of like the limits of what human connection can be. And, and what I, you know, I guess it, for me it asks questions about is there a limit or a capacity for us to connect with others and things that are not
1: human? Um, and yeah. I like the unanswered questions Lem proposes there. Do you think there's a reason why people don't do sci-fi in theatre? I just want to pick up on that. But is, is it because sci-fi is just very, very hard to stage? Is it a production thing? Or is it, or is it the stories themselves don't necessarily lend themselves to theatrical? Um, I think it is hard
2: to stage. Uh, yeah, I think there's a lot of parts of, that you see in, in the genre of science fiction that are incredibly difficult to stage. I mm. mean, intergalactic battles and a whole lot of, <laughs> you know, a sense of sort of that scale can be very difficult to realise in a form... That actually, well, you know, theatre is a form that I think works best when it's inviting an audience to imagine mm. and, and leaves holes in it. And it's not like a film and needs space in it to invite an audience in to imagine with you, um, which I think is
1: brilliant for science fiction but also very difficult for other parts of it. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because I guess you, you the film anyway, the, the, the original Russian film, it feels really claustrophobic Mm. you get you kind of Mm. you're feeling closed in so that bit of it kind of lends itself to theatre quite well well
2: well, that's why I mean I think that's why I was drawn to Solaris because I read the novel and just went it's actually sort of four characters trapped in an interior in a space station which is incredibly theatrical like Mm. many many plays have been written about a group of characters trapped in a house (laughs) or trapped in a interior that's claustrophobic so the fact that it's That situation, uh, but floating, you know, or suspended in orbit above a planet means that um, it's got a wonderful theatrical conceit inside it, but also then a fantastic space for uh, an audience to imagine uh, that planet and
1: imagine where I think they are floating or orbiting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's one thing that I'm trying to, in my head, work out because the story of solaris just just as a quick cap, is, yes. is, is, is that they they is there's a there's a space station above a is it an exoplanet I mean. yeah, <laughs> yeah i would say so. <laughs> it's yeah, an, yeah.
3: Exoplanet. It an exoplanet
1: and and it uh, and it, it has a vast ocean that's a, a yeah. that seems to be a living life form in itself and they're trying to work it out is there it's is there a special technique that you're that you use to or, or would that be spoiling the film to it, spoiling the play in terms of how you represent the the planet the the planet oh. and the ocean yeah
2: um no i don't think i don't think it's spoiling
1: i mean well we early on decided
2: we wouldn't uh realistically see the planet so it was important mm. to us that well, I mean, it's sort of that thing. I mean, what what would you do What stage <laughs> well, that would ever? Yeah, that's what I was thinking. It's <laughs> the you know a, a giant styrofoam sphere is just not going to yeah. be satisfying. So, um, in, we basically agreed that you would see various interiors of a space station, um, and that the audience would essentially be where the planet is. So the gaze of the actor is looking out into a sea of people, which mm-hmm. becomes a constant gaze out into, to look at the planet. Uh, and there's also a sort of very filmic-like shutter that moves up and down throughout the show, um, and we use a, a series of black-white and projections of digital waves um, to sort of create a, you know, slightly abstract, but also just a sort of uh, essence, perhaps, of that
1: ocean. But that's more a gesture to, to it as opposed to being literally that's what the planet is that's an interesting concept if the, if the if the audience themselves are the planet and this this life form presum that that that's interesting itself because presumably they are affecting the actors in in a way that the the, <laughs> that the book sets out, so it kind of yeah. really does lend itself to a it, to a kind of play
2: i mean I think in theater you always have that question of What's, who are the audience, mm. you know, I think you have to somehow just have that in the back of your mind. So, um, you know, it wasn't, we sort of made that decision but it sort of also was a convenient theatrical uh, way to approach it. Um, but it is that thing in theatre, yeah, that the audience, I think the audience sometimes forget that they are impacting on the show. Like it's often, it is strange when, you know, you, you see and feel an audience that you know, thinks that they can't be seen or can't be heard, and actors are sort of going, I can hear you and see you, and you are influencing everything I'm doing up here. Yeah, Like the more you cough or the more stiller you are, shifts the rhythm of the show. So I think it is interesting to think of the audience as a, a, you know, it is a giant consciousness that's, you know, impacting upon... The yeah. poor people on stage.
1: <laughs> yeah, in a way that's almost unfathomable. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, 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 yeah that's, it's, I'm glad it's not just lecturers that have that feel. <laughs> <laughs> that nightmare. <laughs> <home. laughs> so I'm I'm, I'm going to bring I'm going to bring in our resident astrophysicist astronomer type person. So uh, in terms of is it is this some is this a trope that you hear for in like astronomy? Is this something? I mean, obviously, we're we're out looking for life in the in the out in the out in the universe, and is is this a is this a kind of trope where we might not even recognise the life even if we saw it? Yeah, I think that's a good
3: point. Um... Whenever we think of life, uh, we think of one body that we know of hosting life and it's planet Earth. Mm. And in science, to have an example of one is, is, is bad science. <laughs> you, want, you want to find something else elsewhere and, and see, do the same systems work? Uh, did they have the same chemical ingredients? And, and you can rewind it back to the fusion that happens in stars and the sort of core ingredients you have. But we've got such a complicated system here on Earth and we're still trying to figure out how life began. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we do think actually and um, oceans and movement of waves is actually incredibly important for how life got started so so speculating that, that that you know, tidal influences and waves and an and ocean world is is the origins of life or are, could be the origins of life is, yeah, it's worth mm. speculating. We've kind of got a, a blessing and a curse as well with exoplanets. Um, we can't see them in any detail. You see all these fantastic concept mm. art. It's yeah. yeah. great. Um, but really, what most of those detections are, are little winks of stars, yeah. <laughs> little wobbles in stars, and yeah. then it's up to us to kind of, Try and uh, best facilitate the vision of what that planet is like up close, but it still leaves a lot open to interpretation and
1: imagination. Mm-hmm. So, Solaris has space for that as well. So, you were lucky enough to see Solaris. Yes, this production yeah. was the. We've been hearing that, that that it brings more of the science into it than the than the films. So, is there is there something is there a kind of science angle that you kind of actually left you a little bit kind of oh wow that's a that's a that's a great concept um i
3: really liked just the idea of um this uh, push and pull you don't get in the films uh, between there's, there's there's obviously some strong human emotions involved but there's also people trying to hold on to their roles as scientists still trying to do things uh, like measurements and make recordings and getting frustrated at each other if they're not following uh, <laughs> uh the, the you know the scientific yeah. method and looking for repeatability and experimentation. So I like that element that sort of brought it back to that balance between human nature uh, and, and exploration and science. So that uh, that really got me. Also, there's something I, I was kind of very curious about in, in the production, because in films and in other productions, you try and get a glimpse of the future that's very uh, tech heavy mm-hmm. and has everything on glitzy touchscreens and things. But in this production, um. It's very analog. There's some there's some analog elements which I think was really amazing. So, you know, without uh, we're not spoiling too much, no, no, <laughs> no, just in terms of no. you know, VHS tapes yeah. and uh, typewriters, references to typewriters. I think it's a really unusual move to kind of and it keeps it timeless in a sense, so it doesn't feel too hokey. Yeah.
1: Well, by trying well, to invent. Yeah, well, that's a re- okay. So that's a really interesting point. So, so when you were yeah. thinking about the production values then and and bringing yeah. this kind of analogy thing in. Was that a wink to the? Was that a wink to the movies, or was it a wink to the? Or was it a, 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 was was another artistic reason for that? Well, no, there, there was certainly a
2: wink to that aesthetic. That you know, that we were sort of acknowledging that the novel comes from the sixties, like it has mm. that's its era, and so we we went we didn't do explicitly sixties, but it has got a nostalgia looking back in the sense of um, well, it was imagining a future from then. Mm. So I guess we were saying that's in from that level of technology let's imagine ourselves back but i think there was also a a dramaturgical thought that we had about um we wanted the audience we you know we hoped the audience would be listening to some of the science of the show but i don't think we wanted in this particular show for them to be really curious about the technology that the scientists were using like meaning that we didn't want them to be I didn't want the audience to be scrutinising the flat screen yeah. or or, or scrutinising what is that piece of technology, as opposed to when you put a VHS tape up there, everyone just goes, oh, yeah, it's a recording device tape, got it. Yeah, and yeah. it sort of doesn't occupy, well, I hope it doesn't occupy your your imagination to work out how to... I, I, I'm a total sucker for that sort of stuff. As yeah. well, if I see a piece of tech that somebody's tried to,
3: I don't know, leap forward into the future... I will get lost and i go but, like, oh, I'm already thinking about that. Oh, maybe, uh, yeah, exactly. if I progressed to uh, yeah. technology or something and I might be able to see how that works and then I go, oh, hold,
2: hold on, where am
3: I? What's <laughs> going on? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: So, yeah, it's not a distraction in, in, in your production. Well, that's what I mean because I do the same. I think the same thing if I say that's technology and in certain stories that's brilliant If but if that's, the world that you're inviting your audience into. So this We wanted to direct our audience to <laughs> their imaginations elsewhere. I actually like David Lynch's
1: Dune, uh, yeah, yeah, even though yeah, everyone, everyone, everyone else hates it, but <laughs> yeah, I, I like yeah, it because yeah, it, yeah. it doesn't fall into that trap. Like everything, yeah. you know, nothing looks like super techie at all. No, no. <laughs> well, I also love, I mean, we sort of had a little bit of fun in this
2: production of Solaris, because like Space Odyssey and, and Tarkovsky's Solaris, I love that that older genre of sci-fi, uh, it's very human. Like mm. they have coffee machines, you know, it, it's like you know, okay. in, in Space Odyssey, like you see that they've got the coffee machine there and they've got the orange juice machine and there's all these things in this space. And I just sort of love that they uh, humanise it. They try mm. and take, they try and make it like home, you know, they try, it's sort of uh, something like a floating hotel mm. more than mm. a
1: um, science laboratory. So I sort of find that interesting. Did you did you talk to any did you talk to any astronauts or anything like that to sort of get a sense of what it's like to be isolated out in and working in that kind of environment or, or any other kind of person that um, works in that kind of environment? Um,
2: embarrassingly, no, we didn't have a lot of
1: personal conversations. We did the designer and I.
2: We did a lot of research, visual, a lot of research into a whole lot of um, available photographs from NASA, mm-hmm. um, which was just really interesting to see the practicalities of what. The documentation of you know space, what being up in um, in the space station, the International Space Station would be really like. Hmm. I mean, I can I'm still just interpreting images, but that was actually just really useful. Actually, how messy it is, yeah. and how <laughs> it's sort of not yeah. it's not the austere cleanliness that we've inherited as a imagined from you know film. It's very looks very <laughs> just everything that is practical and everything's got a purpose, and but everything is very functional, and messy. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. we have got like, uh, it's
3: funny, they do actually have like coffee machines and yeah. things like that. They brought that up, an Italian astronaut. Yeah, right. Um, and yeah. she, she, she brought brought it up and uh, they even have a special cup to yeah, drink right. espresso in, in microgravity. So that, that, that home comfort thing, you know, they're 400 yeah. kilometres above the air. It's not that far. It's not like Solaris, but yeah, yeah. You, know, you may as well be totally cut off. So they're trying to
1: look for those creature comforts. Yeah, of course. Uh, keep you sane. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yep. Well, yeah, VR's coming into that, isn't it, as well? Yeah. I think Tim Peake wore VR headset ah. while he was doing his London marathon. That makes sense. And and sort of yes. looking at the surroundings and, and listening to rain and you know oh, all, wow. all those kind of things yeah. are kind of that. Apparently, it's those sort of things you really miss that the rain and and the smell of fresh air. I'd imagine I I can't kind help of thinking that the International Space Station stinks. It's recycle. It's all recycled yeah. so I think I'm sure it has yeah, right.
3: some sort of scent to it. <laughs> you know, I don't want to. I haven't asked him or anything.
1: <laughs> I don't know how much they're uh, yeah. trying to mask the reality yeah. of that one. But yeah, yeah right. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. But yeah. so with 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 this production, then you're, I'm I'm assuming you don't you don't attempt to think that it's it's in zero g or anything that, that you're going with a a a one g space station that every, no one's trying to pretend to float around.
2: I wish. I mean, I I wish we could do what, like the amazing Tarkovsky film where they just lose gravity for like you know forty five mm. seconds and. Well, we there was we did talk interestingly. Um, some early design ideas involved a large window that would be filled with a, a film of water um, that we could then where well, you would never you the audience wouldn't see the surface of the water, so the frame would be larger, and that we would be able to drop objects into or performers into to let them float past a window. So we're literally using water to create, you know, anti gravity. I guess, but um, it felt like. It it never earned its place. It was like, well, we could spend all our money on that and use it for a moment of trickery, and it didn't
1: actually earn its storytelling place. So when you when you were when you were sort of looking at 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 how to do it, and and you you're using presumably you're using the obviously the the Russian film and the original book Mm. to kind of as as touch points. Did you did you at any point? bring in the George Clooney uh, film or was or, or was that a, a kind of non-starter did it not float any boats it was didn't
2: there...
1: uh, uh, so look, the book was always the the, the, set, the, the rock yeah.
2: and and even the Tarkovsky film like we you know we watched it uh, and you know discussed it but then put it aside it was important not to let it hang too heavily on mm. in, in the mind um the, and the Clooney film yeah we didn't draw a lot from it, I mean, interestingly, we sort of realized that the Clooney film, like us, um, at some points got caught, well, not caught, but was trying to work out what to do with some of the uh, the more the secondary characters in the narrative. And the Clooney one has that twist of that one of the visitors yes, is actually that's right. I'm spoiling yeah. it, but yeah, yeah it did it, surprise yeah. me, yeah. yeah, it did have the effect of being a twist, but but and I can extra and I can now and understand the writing process of that because you get to that you know, that character Snow and. You can go, in the book, you can go, he doesn't really have a great arc, you know, like mm-hmm. he, does, he doesn't he does really transform, he doesn't have a really, he doesn't end in a different way to the way he began. Like it's, And so we did the same thing, going through lots of ideas of inventing something. Um, and it and ended up our inventions got less and less and it's a bit more faithful to the book. But I can see how they got there in the Clooney film of going, we have to invent something, otherwise the character's too bland. Um, but... Also, I think those, you know, I think the film is tough. I mean, we've done a gender swap mm. um, and, and, and one of the things was not having a, a female visitor that is sort of just m- basically mute and mm. sort of very, um, un, you know, sort of isn't, you know, isn't a very active character in both, I think, the Tarkovsky and the, and the Clooney. So we sort of, part of our, one of our thinkings was to avoid that, was part of the gender swap.
0: Right, Okay.
1: So that so so there is sort of very big kind of like character differences. Yes. In, in this in this production, okay. I will. I won't delve too deep because I, I want to watch. it. <laughs> yeah. I want to watch. it and not spoil it for myself, let alone everyone else. Just wanted to say, I love the, the set design. It's a bit just
3: just gushing here. That's <laughs> all. <laughs> um, but you know, it's it's a very uh, it's a very minimalist set design, mm. but it does a lot. Yeah, yeah. Which is pretty impressive. Like he's managed to seem to change the space a lot, even though it's still you know as you say it's on it. Is a fixed setting, but you do move around uh, quite a bit and still has an, a strong atmosphere, even though it's quite minimalist. And yeah. It's an interesting touch. I think it works really
2: well. Oh, good. Yeah, yeah. We, yeah the, the designers actually... Well, everything, all the early instincts visually for the show were to go to analogue and older theatrical techniques as opposed to anything. We're trying to do the analogue version, not the digital version, even though there's a little bit of projection in it now. Meaning that all the technology is actually inspired by sort of old baroque theaters like where mm. you just you change things rapidly by just flipping eight different panels you know and that actually allows a ocean to appear out of the ground or a forest to appear it's really old tech
1: mm. it's just
2: lots of you know it's the theatrical conceit of lots of small objects being able to move quickly, as opposed to the difficulty of moving one object, one large object that takes yeah. a long time. So that's basically our set. It's just lots of small panels that can move swiftly. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's been around for a long time. That that you know that technique. But um, I, I want to ask. I want to ask you about. What or just what you think um, about the idea of, um, uh, I guess Lem's idea of what happens if. Do we have limits? Like if we is it do you feel like that we're gonna hit moments in that in exploring space where we just go I, I don't have the capacity to understand that. I guess it's interesting. you know, I try and keep uh,
3: the spark alive for like the human exploration of space. Yeah. But, you know, it sound, it sounds a bit lame to say it, but space is so vast that the possibility of getting beyond our solar system or even beyond the inner planets, yeah. Uh, it's unlikely. It's very unlikely, but we're, we're inevitably, I think, going to have to see it through the eyes of robots. Yeah, right. Uh, you know, even into the into the distant future. So um, I guess it will be a lot about interpreting what comes back and how close you can take the physical self out there without actually going there. It's maybe a, a little yeah. unusual, but we don't know how how things are going to go. But we know if we want to go to a distant star system, we're probably looking yeah. at something that's incredibly light, maybe uh, solar sail driven by laser light. Uh, there's an idea of a Starshot program and get to the right. the nearest system and, and then see what comes back from there. So, you're working with the most minimal amount of space and operations yes. to try and interpret what you're seeing and, and bring that back. Um, but I guess if you could, if you could click fingers and and go to different places, uh, there are bizarre systems out there exoplanet systems mm. that are quadruple star systems, uh, and our solar system is. Abnormally kind of boring yeah. compared to other places, uh, which probably is why we've we've kind of had a nice big window of civilization <laughs> to grow <laughs> yeah. and, and yeah. develop and not get ripped apart or have our ah. atmosphere shredded or anything like that. And um, but most stars in uh, our galaxy are are, are binary systems; yes. they are two star systems. Yes. And um, so there's plenty of them that have uh, the figure eight. eight in in, in, in solar. solaris I was, yeah. I was looking back up on that and there some theories that could exist but for a limited time only right so okay. mainly those systems would have a planet orbit the the two stars or just one each but to have it go across them would. and figure eight would be physically difficult and and, and limited. Right. rather a limited time but possible for a short period of time it's possible for a short period of time wow. theoretically wow kind of uh you imagine uh a two star system has a, has two dips in a rubber sheet. Yes. And if you imagine imagine trying to roll a marble, it's in one dip. It's yes. gotta get over the hump. Yes. And get around and then back over the hump again, in a sense, if you were to throw marble into the ah. system. So it's quite a careful balance that yeah. it doesn't just either slip into falling around one star or to go too far
1: and go around both. Yeah. So it's nice it's, it's the balance. old it's the age old three body problem, isn't it? Yes. Right. Yes, yes. <laughs> yes. So, well, yes. That's right. There are some things that get so complicated, like the, the three-body problem, the four-body problem. And correct me if I'm mm-hmm. if I'm wrong here, but it's so complicated. Yes. Without just raw computing power and simulating mm-hmm. it, you can't work out what the hell's going to happen. No, no, so frustrating. You know, the the more I spend in this
3: area, the more I find that the simple things, or the apparently simple things, are more and more and more complicated. Uh, for <laughs> instance, just the moon going around the Earth. It drove Newton mad. He just, he just, it was already a little bit cracked. But, he, you know, that, that that the frustrations of all the parameters involved, you think, yeah. oh, moon goes around Earth in a circle. Oh, no, wait, it's an ellipse. Oh, it's an ellipse tilted. Oh, yeah. the, the orbit shifts. Oh, it wobbles. <laughs> uh, and yeah. all of that happens. And it's amazing that we've got to a stage where you can have predictions, you know, millennia into the future of when and where the next eclipses will occur. Um, and that's just thanks to centuries of observations.
1: That's for something that's close to us, yeah. and yeah. then we're trying to work these things out there, much further away.
2: Yeah,
1: and that's on the shoulder. And that's on the shoulders of giants, oh, absolutely. right? Absolutely. That's on yeah. your Newtons and your Kepler's and yeah. your Copernicus. Yeah. These aren't slouches. Yeah, it's a really interesting point. Though. I I I love that whole thing. That I, th- it seems to me that virtually everything that that gets put in front of the human brain, we we are able to to. to Get to some understanding, you know. Like if you think about our understanding of even the natural world, and why why should we understand space, and why should we understand jellyfish? Why should we understand? (laughs) You know, when we obviously we don't understand jellyfish as much as we would like, or understand space as much as we would like. But but we we feel as though we're making progress. So it'd be. I absolutely love the concept of Solaris, though. It's clearly one of the. It's it's a it's a brilliant thing, and and it is weirdly brushed over in the films. That concept, well, isn't
2: it? Yeah. Well, well, in some ways, the films don't engage with Solaris, the planet, mm. as much. Mm. Yes. The yeah. the actual who what is the planet? It's if it's conscious, what does it have motivations or not? Uh, and, and just it's it's history, it's science, it's legacy, like it's heritage, like is not really. Unpacked, and you know, Lem's book does huge passages on it, which are brilliant to read, but also difficult to turn into. I understand why they're not in the films because I don't. Apart from an, a a lecturer appearing, mm. uh, <laughs> and giving a you know, Tarkovsky, yes. you know, I can yeah. imagine he could have done that. He could have yeah. done a fifteen yeah. minute lecture, but um, it's hard information to um, turn into something that's dramatic. Mm. But um, but no, it's yeah, it's interesting that
1: the planet is not present sometimes yeah yeah I mean, it, that that going back to the, the the chances of ever having humans go out to these things is yeah. is just it's the, the fact i mean like you said just the vastness of just the inner solar system is just yeah. preposterous yeah. and it's just preposterous and then and then you go out just the solar system and it's just like all oh, right going out to another thing but that that there's a whole idea that maybe humans will change will change up humans not just robots but actually oh, change yeah, what a navigation. human is so maybe mm. Mm. it'll be in a, the, the the people that the people like were, mm. were, were looking over something yeah. some crazy exoplanet with some life form that we're really struggling to understand yeah won't even be what we would understand anymore we we wouldn't even understand ourselves at that mm. point yes because it's so it's so it's so ridiculously far away being able to yes. to do it that that's that's almost the depressing thing about being into science is you suddenly realise the things that you love in science fiction are just so far away. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I try not to go on about it at the podcast because it seems like such a depressing. <laughs> <point>. <laughs> like even going to Mars is is like exactly. it's 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 pretty
3: ridiculous. Yeah. But it, you know that is that is crazy to think about as well. Like um, just six to eight months in a in a tin can in space with a few other people. Yeah. Um, that's something that I, I did catch me in all in versions of solaris is yeah. just that idea of being enclosed in an environment whether you're mm. distant uh, ar- around a, in an exoplanet system or on your way to mars you have yeah. to live with the the psyche of other individuals and interact on a long-term basis and yeah. still try and keep pieces of home with you in a sterile environment yeah um, and continue with your job but also be friends be colleagues all of those things
1: it's slightly terrifying yeah I think so too. Yeah. Well, when yeah. I, when I, when I watched it, when I watched the film when I was young, I I actually thought that that's what the the film was about. I actually thought it was about just Isolation going or... just going mad because yeah, you're yeah. isolated. I actually didn't. I and I guess it's because Solaris doesn't feature in the film enough. That yeah, I didn't actually it. realise yeah. it's Solaris that's that's causing the mas- yeah. madness. I wasn't. Yeah, yeah. I didn't. I, I either missed it the yeah. first time round or or not. So yeah. is it with with the production presumably that's really obvious from it, it it drags you in or do you play on that or do you play on that isolation as a as a as a way of kind of storytelling uh, uh, uh,
2: yeah i think the isolation is there but not oh, what well, is actually for the lead psychiatrist the lead psychologist chris kelvin i think she is also using i think she's do, uh negotiating her loneliness and her Desire to how she manages her relationships with people, I think, is a big mm. part of the story. And I think, mm. like um, you're saying, I think going out into space, I, I can imagine, must be like going into intense introspection. Like, yes. Yes. I think you would just go through your own therapy process endlessly because you would just have, I just assume, contained space, very few people, you would just go into a tunnel of reflection, mm-hmm. which I think would just expose. I <laughs> I wonder whether we would expose every every doubt and shame and, you know, question actions that you've gone through and question your emotional, you know, compass. And yeah. <laughs> I can imagine it'd be a very confronting process. Or maybe all astronauts have to go through a very rigorous psychological process. To... Astronauts, I, I don't know if anybody else has, has met a few and, and yeah.
3: I'm sure you haven't, but, yeah. uh, you know, anyone I meet, they seem to be just as cool as a cucumber. Yeah, yeah. yeah. All the time, I just... I don't know if that's, you know, built in personality
1: type or yeah, it's amplified in training and things, but they really seem so camp. Well when you look at when you look at the, the selection process, it's like how do how do you get down from seventy thousand people down to six yeah. for the like the European yeah. astronauts? And it's just yeah. like yeah, it's not about physical fitness. Uh, and it's not it's not necessarily about mental, but yeah. But there's clearly one thing in there that's mega important and that that that, that they're not going to crack like you would expect them to that that, because we don't really understand ourselves i mean really that that's the actual answer isn't it you you you, we if we if we went to mars i'm pretty you know i'm pretty certain in a cat in a tin can like you said for for six months and then you've got to start working on mars and survive yes like man you just you definitely go mental so we we have no idea what would happen to us so we don't really understand we don't understand ourselves let alone let alone another big wobbly (laughs) <laughs> Gel jelly <laughs> on on a, on a on a on a distant world.
2: Yeah, that's an idea though that we we didn't get to unpack. I don't think fully in the play, and it's sort of in the Lem novel though. Is that is the is the thing that the Solaris is possibly also a consciousness that can know you better than yourself, mm. and how actually terrifying that could be if it can if it's able to preempt I mean, if it's just actually able to preempt your synapses, preempt your thoughts before you have them. If it's able to know you better than you know yourself, know your actions, know your impulses, like that's that's terrifying. It's sort of like metadata that can preempt everything you're going to do, and therefore you, just, you have just you've, you've just, I've you've just explained, explained,
1: you've just described
0: Google. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's like, a yeah. massive
2: algorithm. Yeah. Which, like there was a part of the play originally about Snow arguing, going, "We should if we can get this, if we can understand how Solaris does this, and bring it back to Earth, imagine the, what we could do." Like, if we could do what it does on Earth and just by being Mm. in the presence of other people completely absorb and understand what they're doing and predict their behaviour, the terrifying
1: power of that. (laughs) (laughs)
2: Dystopian future.
3: Yeah, that's right.
1: I don't know if we want to unleash that. So how, how how long does the play... Run for and, and when's the and does it go to anywhere else? Is it just in the, at the moment? Place?
2: No, we we've uh, played in Melbourne, Edinburgh, and now we're here, and we play until the second of November. Tickets? Any tickets left? There's a few tickets left. It's selling fast, but there are a few okay, tickets. Yeah. yeah. So
1: right, I bet I better get this on the phone. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And what what about yourself? What how, how how do people hook up with you and and, and learn about space yeah. at, at the Greenwich? Is it Greenwich Observatory? Yeah, the Royal
3: Observatory Greenwich. We're uh, basically open most days in the year. Uh, on our team we're all uh, either active astronomers or ex astronomers uh, and you can come along we have uh, monthly science fiction film screenings uh, which is a nice time we uh, we take uh, either a classic film or, or something more contemporary and we talk about the science fact in science fiction afterwards but you're under the stars watching a film so like um, next one we got is first men in the moon the 1960s oh for film classic which is just really good Uh, and then something more family friendly in in wally for for christmas which is classic (laughs) classic, another another sort of classic Um, and then and then we do everything up to adult courses as well so if people want to come and learn seriously about astrophysics um, and we we do a two-year course or introduction to astronomy Uh, and we're on tap on twitter as well we're we're rog astronomers so if you contact us you've got an astronomer on the other end Mm. So if you've got really complicated questions, we'll try and squeeze it into a tweet in terms of the answer.
1: <laughs> Did you ever get to do you ever get to look into the actual telescopes up there? As... Yeah, I actually just I just came this
3: evening from uh, training up our, our volunteers on our Great Equatorial Telescope. So it's a it's a 28 tonne telescope, uh, Victorian telescope, 1893. And uh, we look at the moon double stars. Uh, binary star systems yeah. actually, twining back into Solaris. We haven't seen any planets around those, but yeah. we we're able to admire this even from um, what is now today effectively central London. And uh, we still get great views of bright objects. So we have our evening with the stars, uh, where people can come along and look through telescope, kicking off uh, from the eighth of November. We do fifteen nights in the year, so you can come along
1: where it's the home of time and space and experience it all. Excellent. So, you know, do you get to ever see Jupiter or Saturn? Because I still yeah. think that Jupiter and Saturn, when you look through a telescope, mm. is is the most epic epic thing ever, isn't it? It's, it's the thing that if you're not into astronomy, you will be after that. That's right. Uh, most people it's a watershed moment, of yeah. seeing a planet through
3: a telescope and realizing it's not a recording; it's live. It's yeah. well, as live as light will allow it to be, <laughs> yeah. uh, with a bit of journey time. But um, at the moon, the moon is the one we we often go have a look at because it just changes changes night after night. And there's a a true landscape there. So if you look along where light meets dark, what we call the Terminator, and you see the shadows of mountains and these cliff walls, you you could just imagine being on this terrain. uh, And it's amazing. So it's it's a very tangible destination to look at through a telescope.
0: Well, thanks very much. The Interplanetary Podcast is alive!
1: That was ace. People need to check that out at once. Yeah, lots lots of questions, yeah. Could there... Could there be a planet that knows you more than you know yourself?
0: Well, I'll let you know before the end of the year.
1: Jamie, I don't want to finish on a very uh, heartening story. Please for, for people like you who want to go up on, you know, a little space tourist. Oh, just send me up. There was no defects found in the reproductive ability of male mice returning from the short stay in space.
0: Wait, what you're saying is... If I do go to Mars and come back, I can no, still... no, no,
1: not, no, no, not Mars, Jamie. Oh. I said, sh- I said, short stay, not an unbelievably long stay that will almost certainly cause your death. <laughs> oh. So yes, I'm talking about you know flying up on old Richard Branson's uh, Virgin Galactic, which is about to go on the stock market, so you can buy you can buy blooming I mean, shares in that in the in the next couple of days, Jamie. But oh, stick me down
0: for a fiver's worth.
1: But it's looking good for short stays in space, that it's not going to permanently affect your reproductive uh, systems.
0: Well, I mean, it's good news for anyone who wants to procreate with me.
1: Uh, Yeah, so Professor Aikawa Masahito from Osaka University, uh, along with a bunch of other researchers at the University of Tsukuba. Wow, yeah. Uh, Is that right, you reckon, Tsukuba? Sure. Uh, uh, and JAXA, of course, the Japanese Aerospace Exploration Agency. Yeah, they were they they've been looking at uh, mice that they sent to the International Space Station. They were checking launch and landing stress, psychological stress, gravity changes, and radiation. Those are all the things that you're going to come across that might affect the testes, etc. Right. Uh, where where were we? Gra- so gravity at launch. And landing is about seven. So that's what's known as hypergravity. Oh, so that yeah. actually might, you know, cause damage in arterial pressure and things mm-hmm. like that. You've got uh, zero gravity that uh, causes uh, muscle and bone disorders and also a disorder in the optic nerve. So yes. God knows what it's doing to the old, your reproductive bits. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, then you've got your radiation dose, and did you know that a radiation every day on the International Space Station, you get the same radiation dose as you get in half a year on Earth. So uh, that that's not good. So no. obviously that's 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 um, like being on a very very hot beach and not wearing any kind of suntan cream, yeah. Except worse. Um, so yes, they, they were in a little special cage that that could be put in a centrifuge on the International Space Station these 12 male mice, and they could go between one gravity, you know, artificial gravity in this little centrifuge, or mm. microgravity, as in on the ISS. And they stayed up there for 35 days and then came back down. And uh, it turns out that there isn't much damage and you can't really see the damage In and there's no sort of gene, you know, there's nothing wrong with the gene expression and things like that. And it, it seemed that they were able to fertilise... Uh, eggs and um and and the little pups little pups the little Aww. baby mice um seem to have no real kind of side effects so it looks like there wasn't any kind of long-term problem with short term stays in space
0: apart from they but, did find that they had horrific flashbacks of their parents going into space
1: <laughs> oh yeah i mean i wonder how a i wonder how a mice I wonder how mice feel about going to space. But, of course, that's just mice. It, yeah. it might be having a completely different effect on humans. Very God true. God knows. God Very knows. True. But, yeah, who knows, Jamie? Anyway, Jamie, uh, I, uh, we've got some great things happening on the Discord at the moment and, uh, and awesome people. Well, they're knocking it out of the park with ideas
0: and, and all that chat and getting involved. And, like, I tell you what, Matt, talking about getting involved, if you
1: want to become... A member. How do mm-hmm. you do it? Uh, you just go to www.interplanetary.org.uk where you'll find our weekly blog that goes along with the podcast but also a little button that says go to the Patreon page and if you go to the Patreon page you could sign up at any level but there's some interesting content on the Patreon page let alone uh, having to sign up so uh, you can have a little look at that and if you like what you hear you can maybe support this this labor of love that we have Jamie and well um, and it helps I mean, to pay for things like my visit to the Lyric in Hammersmith
0: well I mean that all sounds great but what if I just want to follow you on Instagram surely you don't have a page well we do Jamie
1: we what? really do get out yeah it's the Interplanetary Podcast. <laughs> oh,
0: it's simple as simple as that. Something like that. Why don't you come and follow us and leave us a little comment um, and get involved in the show. We'd love to hear from you. It's our favourite thing ever, isn't it, hearing from, from people who listen to this drivel?
1: Yeah, the favourite thing ever is getting emails telling us that, that people have decided to do a master's degree in space because I mean, they were fans of the podcast. I mean, we've actually encouraged people. Isn't
0: right, is it? People... Changing their studies because of us two idiots.
1: I know. It actually brings great warmth to my heart. That's why we're doing it,
0: Jamie. It really makes us happy. And uh, long live the people who uh, are deciding to change their life to better mankind. Space is the place. That's what everyone's saying. So... We will bid you farewell. I'd like you
1: all to have a good weekend. What about you, Matt? I would definitely like the Spodcats to have a good weekend. I did have an idea that if you're a Spodcat and you would like to uh, write a little blog post, you can write a little blog post and we'll stick it. If if it's good, we'll we'll edit it and we'll stick it up on the interplanetary.org.uk. And what can the blog post be about, That It can be about anything about space. You know the podcast. We do a little you bit of rocket. We do a little bit of black holes. We do a little bit of astrophysics. We do general chit-chat about space stuff. So it can be anything. And uh, if, if you, so if you fancy doing that, that would be absolutely brilliant. Absolutely we ace. We love are, people when they get involved.
0: We love people getting involved. So why don't you have a think about what you would contribute and get a writing and don't think you're not good enough because uh, have you heard me
1: i mean (laughs) come on i I can safely say if jamie can do it you can do it
0: it's it's definitely inspiring (laughs) uh so have a good weekend everybody and don't forget look up see you soon bye 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 -bye,